Welcome to Clear Thinking Out Loud, written and narrated by Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge. Hi, I'm Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge, and welcome to How to Help the Client Who Doesn't Want Therapy. Reframing therapy so that reluctant clients can accept help. So when we are no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. So said Victor E. Frankel, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning. They have to want to change. Now, I bet you've heard this statement many times. It's one of those therapeutic cliches. An unmotivated or reluctant client is no client at all, but they could be. Like many cliches, there's some truth in it. You know, we do need our clients to be focused on their own cure and actually working with us. Or sometimes we need to find ways for them to be cured despite self-sabotage. And we can throw a lifeline to someone, but they do need to actually grab it. Sometimes clients say they want therapy or even think they want therapy, but their behavior shows you otherwise. They may resist your attempts to help them because... Perhaps there are payoffs to their behavior. Maybe unconsciously it's, be, it's become uh, more comfortable to have the problem than not to have it in some way. Uh, perhaps they're really suffering, but are so used to being stoic, or maybe they want to get better, but deep down don't believe it's possible. Okay. Sometimes those with low self-esteem are loath to spend money or time on themselves because they don't see themselves as a worthy investment of these resources and therapy is spending time and money on yourself. When we look at how people act rather than merely at what they say, we can tell whether they're really motivated or not. But first a caveat, the world on the couch? At this stage, I think it's worth saying that just as the physically fit and healthy don't need medical first aid, I don't think everyone needs or should have therapy. Some therapy schools insist that all their practitioners have copious analytical therapy for which they may have to pay extra on top of their training, and it may go on for years. The idea is that if it's uh, good for some people, it must be good for all people. One woman I knew had to have therapy three times a week for three years just to qualify as a therapist. But rushing for psychotherapy at the first sign of any emotional difficulty may deny a person the chance to develop their own coping strategies, creative problem-solving, and personal strength and resources. The pebble is only made smooth by the lashings of the sea. Sometimes, though, people can benefit from sensible, balanced, strategic, empathetic help. The effects of a person's past or current circumstances may become so overwhelming that they really could be helped by an able practitioner if they would but entertain the idea. So what might stop someone seeking help? I'm not weak. Lambert was brought to see me because he was suffering immensely. His wife had forced him to come into therapy and he sat before me stumped in exhaustion. And he said, I'm not normally a weak person. And that was interesting. But his daughter had died and he'd never gotten over the trauma. Work stresses were piling up and all kinds of other problems were rearing their head in his life. He was overwhelmed. Lambert was a structural engineer. So I told him I knew little about engineering, 
but asked him whether, if a bridge was taking on much heavier loads, would there be a case for reinforcing it at any point? Yes, that could be done, he said. And would that be the bridge's fault that it needed reinforcing? No, it wouldn't be, because its load had increased, he said. And I didn't mention weakness again, and nor did Lambert. He didn't need to, because now he had a frame of reference that made therapy acceptable to him. Along with that not wanting to seem weak, there is another idea some people form about the need for therapy sometimes. I'm not crazy. Some people feel they don't need therapy because they don't want to think of themselves as crazy or weird. Okay, who does? Cassie, who's a client, was forced to see me by her mother. Once her mum had left the room, the 19-year-old told me that she didn't want to be here at all. I appreciated her honesty, uh, so I didn't take it personally. And I didn't try to argue with her perception or try to convince her logically why therapy for her panic attacks might be a good idea. And her mother had used every um, argument in the parental book, so she was well primed to resist such ideas. So I didn't try to use the same arguments. Instead, I told her that I didn't blame her for not wanting therapy because she didn't know yet how it could make her happier. So how could she at the moment want therapy? I didn't use well or normal, but happier. I told her that any normal person her age or any age wouldn't want therapy. But I also suggested that most people in my experience don't want panic attacks. She told me how bad the panic attacks were. And I asked her, what do you not want the most, panic attacks or therapy to cure the panic attacks? Cassie smiled. And she said, well, panic attacks, I guess. That's what I don't want the most. Then she added pensively, I guess I think of myself as normal and it feels like I must be weird to have to have therapy. Yes, I said, therapy isn't a great word. Really, this is a learning situation. I can teach you, your unconscious mind, how to stay relaxed and not bother to intermittently waste all that energy when panic isn't needed. Some people like the idea of therapy, but for our purposes, this is really a coaching session. Okay, it's a learning situation. And perhaps we can take just one session to sort those panic attacks out. Does that sound good? And sometimes we can reframe what's normal and what therapy is. But in order to do that, we need to join with, not argue against the client's perception. But sometimes your client may not quite be ready for therapy. What if it gets even worse? Build your shelter while the sun shines. That's what they say. But I suspect on a metaphoric level, most of us don't do that. As long as things aren't too bad, we let it ride and ignore the gathering storm clouds. But once it starts pouring, we suddenly feel extremely motivated to find cover. It takes a far-seeing mind to solve problems before they arise. Human beings often change only when they're forced to change, not forced by other people. Often that just makes them resentful and resistant, but by circumstances and discomfort. The discomfort of not getting on with your project starts to outweigh the pain of actually doing it. A tipping point is reached and procrastination melts away. The encroaching ache of loneliness starts to feel stronger than the pain of uh, socializing and the fear that that might bring. Something has to change. The regret of not having pursued dreams starts to sharpen and cut deeper than the fear of going for it. It becomes easier to act 
than to not act, because to not act now is just so painful. The greater the burden we carry, the greater the desire to lay it down. Has your client reached a tipping point? And if not, can you help them to do so? The heavy lady who got heavier. So I recall the case um, history of Dr. Milton Erickson, in which he um, instructed an overweight woman who was reluctant to engage in therapy to put more weight on. Okay, She'd resisted any attempts to encourage her to lose weight, so he asked her to put weight on. Eventually, she was begging him uh, to be allowed to start losing weight because putting weight on was becoming so painful to her. He'd effectively engineered the problem to become so bad that she now felt she really wanted to change. So that's a crazy example, you might think. But it's hard to get away with that kind of therapy nowadays. You know, efficacy and, and what is seen as correct often don't sit easily together. But we can pose questions to this effect, such as, you know, if you were to continue eating, smoking or self-harming like this into the future, describe to me exactly what you imagine it will be like for you. I might even hypnotically have a client experience the rain, so to speak, before it starts pouring. This may be enough for some people, as I stretch this metaphor to breaking point, to get them motivated to build that shelter now. So have you ever read or watched Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol? Ebenezer Scrooge is forced by the um, ghost of Christmas future to confront his own potential fate if he had carried on the way he was going. He doesn't have to wait for the future, by which time it might be too late, because he's been given a chance to access it from the present. So making changes when we reach rock bottom is all very well, but people can be more sophisticated than that. So don't argue or tussle with the client to get them to see they need therapy. When you push a client, they may push back even harder, the backfire effect. No one likes to feel pulled or pushed or manipulated, no matter how good the intentions are of the person doing that. Help make therapy acceptable to your reluctant client by reframing it to fit their interests and understandings. Just because a bridge needs reinforcing doesn't mean it's the fault of the bridge. Help them see how bad things might get without change, or how good things could be with change. This can be done through careful discussion and also hypnotic experience. Remember old Ebenezer Scrooge. Okay, and that whole novel could be seen as a hypnotherapeutic intervention. And ultimately, we don't or shouldn't and can't force people to engage in therapy. They are free agents. But we can help frame therapy as acceptable within their frame of interest and understanding, help make it feel normal, and focus on the possible eventualities if they continue as they are without help or change. We all need help sometimes, and there need never be any shame in that. So I hope you found that useful. I'm Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge, and if you'd like to subscribe to my email newsletter, you can find it over at unk.com slash blog. That's U-N-K dot com slash blog. Mm-hmm.